Usually I would read the text for us, uh, but it's a long text, uh, and we're going to be short on time in as much as we care about it um, anyway this morning. Uh, So let me go ahead and just open us up in prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we return to you once again to ask for help. Uh, This entire task this morning of worship, this incredible opportunity of worship, is one that must be laden in prayer because we need your help. And we especially need your help when we turn our attention to your word as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. Forgive us if we would be so arrogant as to think that we can know about you outside of your word, that we can dream up thoughts about how you act or what you think, that we can dream up ideas about how you will treat us, about what's fair and not fair. Forgive us, God, that we believe at times the lie of our culture that tells us every one of us actually knows what we need to know about God. The truth is we're ignorant fools on our own searching to know You if it were not for the fact we have the revealed Word of God. And so we gather this morning and ask for help as we look at it. We pray that we would trust it. We understand that it oftentimes is tough to understand. So I just pray that You would give us humility to crawl underneath it this morning, to submit ourselves to it, and that You would give us attention to think hard about it. In it are amazing truths that answer the deepest questions of our souls. Questions that are so deep Oftentimes, we don't even know our soul is asking them. So I pray for help for every listener this morning. I pray for help as the preacher this morning. And I pray that Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, would be exalted in the midst of your people this morning through this text. We ask these things to you, Father. We ask them through the very strong name of our priest, Jesus Christ, that you would apply them now by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we gather this morning, we gather as a, uh, a distinct group of people, um, maybe smaller than normal, but we are still distinct. And we have a lot of different concerns. We really do have a lot of different concerns. Some of you, some of us, Wonder how we're going to squeeze out the next few weeks financially. How we're going to pay the bills. Some are concerned about a report that's due back any day from a doctor about a diagnosis or perhaps an upcoming procedure. Some of us are deeply concerned about the future for our children. What does it mean for them? Others wonder if they'll ever find the spouse they so deeply desire. Others might be wanting to get rid of the spouse they once deeply desired. (laughs) Others wonder if they'll ever finally have the children they so deeply want to have. And others are wondering when God will let those children run free. (laughs) Still, there are only a couple of examples. These are concerns. And they drive us. They, They literally drive us. And those are just the concerns here. Go glimpse at the news. Go glimpse in particular at the world news. And there are deep concerns. There are people trapped 
in seemingly desperate situations. And while all these concerns are major, and they certainly occupy and drive our thoughts, these are not, these are not the main concern in Scripture. And they certainly aren't the main concern of the book of Hebrews. This is big to see. You actually will only see this if you take time and read through from beginning to end the Bible. I just can't overemphasize how helpful that is. You'll find out what the Bible's concerned about. Certainly it's God's concern with all the things we've discussed. But as a wise and a loving God, He reveals to us in Scripture the most desperate needs we have. And He holds as the most paramount concern this. How will we, how will I, a condemned lawbreaker, stand before the throne of God. That is the paramount concern for you and I all through the pages of Scripture. How will we, as condemned lawbreakers, stand before the throne of God? Back in February, Pastor Mark helped us embark upon this journey in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and he explained that the book is laser-focused on the theme that Jesus is better. He told us that the main takeaway of the book is our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will bring us to endure all things until we see our eternal reward in Christ. It's my hope that I'm just one more installment in this project. So since the very opening message, we have seen that Jesus is better, chapter 1, than the prophets. He's better than the angels. That's chapter 1 and 2. He's better, chapter 3, than Moses. And beginning in chapter 4, the author launches into an argument to say he's better than Aaron. This argument that Jesus is the best high priest begins in chapter 4 and goes all the way to chapter 10. It actually is the central uh, comparison in the book. In chapters 4 through 6, which we've already looked at, the argument was put forward that Jesus has a superior nature as a high priest. The point being made in chapter 7, though, is that Jesus is better than the priesthood established underneath the law. Let me say that again. The main argument of chapter 7 is that Jesus is better than the priesthood established under the law. There are a lot of Old Testament themes in our passage this morning. And we honestly have to have some handle on how they flow through the Old Testament before you'll get the argument being represented. So on your handout, you should see at the top there, and there's, there's going to be repeated in a couple different ways, a brief Old Testament timeline. The, the top row gives you the books of, the, of history from Genesis all the way across to uh, Esther. And then the middle row there should give you corresponding time periods for that book in history. And they're 500, it's, it's really nice how it lays out the, the Old Testament history. They're 500 year blocks that, that you see there. And then at the bottom I gave you a very wide angled summary. What's going on there? So big picture timeline. Even if you're not a history buff by any sense. If, if you take right this moment, 
and go backwards in time 2,000 years ago, then that's the time that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. So if Jesus of Nazareth is walking the earth at this time here, 2,000 years ago in the, in, in the future is where we are. That's right now. And then if you go 2,000 years the other way in the past, that's Abraham. It splits up very nicely for us. So 2,000 years before Jesus is Abraham. 2,000 years after Jesus is where we are right now. So the graph at, at the top of the page one of your handout shows you that around 2000 BC, roughly, that's when God called Abraham. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 12. I gave you the text there. There God explains that he intends to bless Abraham. It's the calling of Abraham. And then, as you go through Genesis, you get to chapter 14. That's where Pastor Mark uh, treated that passage for us last week, and we'll take a look at that. But just stop and make sure you understand what happened in human history is major with the call of Abraham. That's when this personal God, Yahweh, that's when He initiated and called out to Abraham and said, I'm going to do something, I'm going to redeem a people, and it's going to come through you. That has never stopped being the initiative of how God gets a people. Okay? So that's year 2000. Then, chapter 14. Last time we saw that Abraham had to go on a rescue mission to rescue his son, or his, uh, his nephew Lot, from some kings that had taken him. And he comes back from this mission, and it's at this point that we're introduced to a guy with the name Melchizedek. I showed Asher that name this week. Uh, Melchizedek, and he was very thankful for that short name, Asher, after seeing the name Melchizedek. Um, so that passage, which was treated very helpfully for us last time, is this in Genesis 14, 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Sheva. That's the king's valley. So Abraham's coming back, king of Sodom comes out to meet him, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, talking about Melchizedek, was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth, that's a tithe, of everything. Couple of names. This is actually the only appearance of Melchizedek in all the scriptures. The only time we see him appear in narrative. We are told nothing of his genealogy. That's odd because Genesis, read through it, loves genealogies. We are told he is a priest of the God Most High. And if you're not, uh, if you're not careful, you'll read priest and go, big deal. I mean, priest got to be all over. That word's got to be all over Scripture. It's actually the very first time in all of Scripture that the word priest ever appears. He is the first person ever called a priest of God. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham turns around and gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And after that, for a half a millennium, 
we will hear, sorry, for a whole millennium, we will hear nothing else about Melchizedek. Then in Genesis 15, we're presented with the covenant between God and Abraham. The big takeaway here is this. God initiated and executed this covenant exclusively with Abraham. Abraham did nothing and has to do nothing to keep the covenant alive. It is God's initiative. Abraham's only role is benefactor. He benefits from the covenant. This covenant is in no way based upon his actions. And in many ways, you'll see it is brought about despite his actions. It is an unconditional covenant of promise. Then in Genesis 22, we're told the story of Abraham being tested by God. And, and you, even if you're not very familiar with the Scriptures, this is one that is often taught in literature classes. As God tested Abraham by asking him to go sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And amazingly, Abraham shows immense faith in God and he proceeds to obey God's request to sacrifice Isaac before God stops him. God instructs Abraham to instead sacrifice a ram in Isaac's stead. God tells Abraham there in Genesis 22 that his faith has secured an oath from God that he will carry out all that he's promised. Alright, so that's 500, or year 2000 B.C., around then. Now if you go forward about 500 years, you're going to get to the time of Moses. There's a gap for about 500 years. 400 of them spent with the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. While the covenant with Abraham was an unconditional promise of blessing, the covenant that God makes with the Israelites in the wilderness after they've been let out of Egypt it's often referred to as the Old Covenant. It's a covenant of conditional promise for blessing or a promise of curse. Catch this. Unconditional promise was Abraham. The promise of Moses, the Old Covenant, is a promise of condition. If you obey, good things happen. If you disobey, bad things happen. So Exodus 28 tells us that, that God centers the role of this promise around the priest. And all the priests will come through the person of Aaron, his family line, and Aaron is connected to the tribe of the Levites. As such, we often call this priesthood the Levitical priesthood. So it's just a big word. Somebody says Levitical priesthood, they mean the priesthood that God set up through the person of Aaron. Aaron's great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy was Levi, and therefore all the priests come from Aaron, who came from Levi, and therefore we call it the Levitical priesthood. Of the priests, there was one priest who served as the high priest, and he went once a year into an area known as the Holy of Holies to stand before God on behalf of the people. This area of the tabernacle was separated by a very large curtain. It's a veil. So at times, it's shortened to say, and he went behind the veil, meaning he went into the Holy of Holies. Stay with me. This is described in Leviticus 16. I gave you some text there. You can look at it later if you want. In Exodus 34, we see the Old Covenant was constructed around the law. I gave you that text. 
And in Deuteronomy 11, we can see that God built the covenant as a condition of obedience. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 11, it's also on your sheet. I'm not expecting you to be able to read all that as I'm going through here. I'm just giving it to you for reference later. See, verse 26 of Deuteronomy 11. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you... You see the conditions? Those are literal conditional statements. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, conditional statement... If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. That's a conditional covenant. Now, fast forward from Moses, go 500 years later, and you're at the time of David. Abraham, 500 years Moses, 500 years David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7... There's a covenant established with David, and it is a lot like the covenant with Abraham. Like the Abrahamic covenant, which is just a, just a covenant of Abraham, and unlike the old covenant, it is an unconditional promise of blessing. Again, God takes all the initiative with David to execute the covenant. He promises David he'll raise up a king that'll sit on the throne of line of David forever through the line of Judah. So if you take David and go all the way back to who's his great, 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 great granddaddy, you're going to get, don't count the greats there, you're going to get a guy by the name of Judah. So David is in the line of Judah. What is the, the, the promise to David? The promise to David is this. You will have a king sit on your throne who will be the forever king of the world through your line. One of your sons will be the forever king. All right, that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think I gave you the text there. But we're going to look at Psalm 110, which was looked at last time as well. This represents the only other passage in all of the Old Testament about Melchizedek. It's a psalm of David. David is speaking of the promised forever king. By the way, this psalm, and I gave you the references, it's actually quoted all throughout the New Testament as Jesus makes use of it to show this is talking about Jesus. Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, and that's the, if your translation should help you here, you, you should see there that one of those is all caps, all big caps, L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So this is... God, the Father, talking to this forever king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That, a, a scepter is a thing a king held. We don't have many people walking around with scepters today. Rule, in, at least not around in our areas. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your earth of your youth will be yours. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn. God swears to Abraham after Genesis 22, after he obediently uh, is willing to sacrifice Isaac. I promise everything I said for you will happen. Now God swears again that this is going to be true of this king, 
of, this, uh, of the forever king. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Aaron? No. After the order of who? Melchizedek. So if you've been tracking through Scripture, say you're just a really careful reader with a really good attention span and a lot of coffee, and you started in Genesis 1 and you get all the way up to Psalm 110, you're going to be saying to yourselves, it's been days ago that I read about this Melchizedek. I don't even remember this Melchizedek, right? This feels like it comes out of nowhere. Okay? I mean, it would have been very, very hard to understand. It's hard to understand because he's talking about a king who's also a priest. Those roles were separated. Kings and priests weren't the same person. Now he's talking about a king, a forever king, and he says, you're going to be a what? A forever priest. That's odd. He should also have said that he's going to be a priest in the order of Levi or Aaron, not Melchizedek. Again, this would have been spoken 500 years after the priesthood of Aaron was already established. So 500 years after that, we, after Aaron, we hear somebody talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now wait a second, Melchizedek's name was mentioned 500 years before Aaron. That's odd. What is going on? Well, Hebrews 7 holds the answer. To get us from time of David to the New Testament with about three sentences here, I think here's a quick way to proceed. Understand that the Old Testament proceeds from David to Jesus through the Old Covenant's conditions. That is, it promised, if you obey, things go well. If you disobey, they don't. You might consider the time of David as a time of blessing. As the nation reached its pinnacle, certainly under his son, Solomon, but the people turned their back and they disobeyed God and consequently curses came and a period of cursing ensued. Of curses, there might have been some cursing there as well. And the people were exiled out of their, la their land. They later returned to a very diminished land. And then we get from that moment, 500 years, from 500 B.C. to the time of Jesus, there's just complete silence from heaven. And then Jesus is born. Alright, you might want to nudge your neighbor. Tell him wake up, the sermon's about to begin. Preamble is over. Um, if it does make you feel good, I'm halfway through my notes. Uh, so, uh, we'll, we'll get there. That is background for Hebrews 6 and 7. And I'm praying that you'll get done with this and you say that was worth it. I don't know. Keep in mind, the central question of the Bible for you and I. It's the one the Bible wants you to have on the forefront of your mind. How will I, a condemned lawbreaker, stand before the throne of God above? How will I, a condemned lawbreaker, stand before the throne of God? We'll begin with verses 13 through 20 of chapter 6. Here we see that Jesus is an anchor for our souls. Verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, 
saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, in all their disputes an oath for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with an oath. He swore. Verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, he would have fled, he who have, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain, where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews points us to an oath, a swearing of God with Abraham back in Genesis 22 where God promised this to Abraham after Abraham obeyed. And he basically said, everything I've said I'll do, I promise you, I'm going to do it. It's a double promise. The Spirit of God is encouraging the Hebrews and encourages us Follow the example of Abraham. Hold fast to the hope that God's promises are sure. Brothers and sisters, God cannot lie. His word cannot. It is impossible for it to fail. Everything that God has promised, everything He will do. The very God that came through for Abraham is the very God who we can and to whom we should trust our souls. We are told here that Jesus serves, I love this language, as an anchor for our souls. He holds steady our souls when the waves of doubt and fear come. When we doubt, that God could really love us given how messed up we are. When we doubt that God could ever truly forgive the things we've done. When we consider all the way, ways that we fail to meet the standards of God's law, the depths of our self-centeredness, our malice, our lust, our anger, our impatience, our bitterness, our covetousness, our callousness, our laziness, we wonder if it could really be true that God will sustain our souls. And we are told to not drop our anchor down to anything here and now to steady our souls, but to anchor it by raising our anchor up by faith to Christ Jesus who alone will plead for mercy before the Father. The author goes on there to say that Jesus enters into the inner place. He goes behind the curtain. That's the language we spoke of. Our high priest goes before the throne of God and offers a sure and a perfect plea. He is our high priest forever 
in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is the argument put forward as to why Jesus then is a superior high priest. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We are told how Melchizedek met Abraham, remember that in Genesis 14, and how Abraham paid him a tithe. And then he goes on to explain the significance of this Melchizedek. It says this, at the end of verse 2, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So he says, as his name implies, he is a king of righteousness. That's what his name means. Milk, uh, milk and kiz- or milk, and then uh, zedek. Or zedek means righteousness, and milk would mean king in the Hebrew. I put it down there for you. So Melchizedek is a king uh, of righteousness. And then his title says he's king of Salem. Salem just means peace. Our daughter's name is Salem, and I'm sure her brother would debate as to whether that was a fitting (laughs) name or not. But anyway, technically her name means peace. So here we have a king of righteousness and a king of peace. That was declared in 2000 BC. Just hold that steady as you think about it. The first priest ever in all of the scripture is who? Melchizedek, a king of righteousness and peace. Furthermore, the fact that he doesn't have a genealogy mentioned in Genesis, it points us to the fact that he is a picture of somebody else who's coming who has neither beginning nor an end. Alright, so to understand what's happening here, you have to understand this about what happens with many Old Testament events. Many Old Testament events really, well, they all really happen, but they're also describing other pictures of something else bigger than them. So while the story of Abraham and Melchizedek really happened, what you read about Abraham coming back from war and Melchizedek meeting him, this guy really lived, that event really happened. The author of Hebrews isn't suggesting that it didn't happen. He isn't suggesting that Melchizedek was never born and that Melchizedek never died. Instead, he is saying that the fact that there is no genealogy is an indicator that something bigger is happening. He points. He resembles someone else. He resembles the Son of God who has neither beginning nor end and is a priest forever. He continues his argument in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi, remember those are the priests, who received the priestly office, they have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. 
though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from, the, from them, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. In other words, who is this guy? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if he's blessing Abraham, he must be superior to Abraham. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom is testified that he lives. One might even say, I love this point, that Levi himself, that is, all the priesthood, who receives tithes, they were actually paying tithes through Abraham, because who, who does Levi come from? Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, one who is a little boy named Levi, right? One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So when we see Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek, we can see this is a way of showing that the line of Aaron is inferior to the line of Melchizedek. Because the Levites, well, they do get a tithe, but they only get a tithe because the law says so. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek 500 years before the law ever was introduced. And notice, Melchizedek doesn't pay a tithe to Abraham, but the other way around. Abraham pays the tithe to Melchizedek. And therefore, technically, the Levites are tithing to him. Thus, the argument goes, the order of Melchizedek is greater, says the, argument, says the author of Hebrews, is greater than the order of Aaron. That's the argument. It's really tightly argued. Verse 11 we're going to read for a little bit. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Huge. For the one of for one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Alright, so he's talking here about Jesus. Jesus is from the line of Judah. Judah doesn't serve as priest. Verse 14. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that, the tribe Moses said nothing about priest. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. It's talking here about the Old Testament, the Old, the Old Covenant law. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the surety of a better covenant. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number, number because they are prevented from death by continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once and for all, he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews moves to offer points of comparison. That's what he's doing here. Between the Aaronic, the priesthood of Aaron, and the priesthood of Jesus. Very quickly. First, the idea that the priesthood of Aaron was not ultimate, that shouldn't be a surprise at all. Why? Because Psalm 110 clearly assumes that another priest is coming through Melchizedek. It must be a priest under the order of Melchizedek who will be the ultimate priest, not under the tribe of Levi. That's one of the arguments he makes here. Second, I'm just summarizing what we just read in case you didn't follow every piece of that argument. Second, this is, is also makes sense that Jesus of Nazareth was not from the tribe of Levi as associated with the priesthood of Aaron. Instead, Jesus is from what tribe? Tribe of Judah, exactly right. And that's associated with who? David. So that's why he has to be associated with him because he's the forever king promised in 2 Samuel 7. Hence why Psalm 110 speaks of a king priest coming from the line of David, the line of Judah through the order of Melchizedek. Third, we must understand that all things flow from the priesthood. If the priesthood changes... So does the law. It's such an important verse. The Old Testament law served the incredibly helpful role, catch this, of revealing to God, to God's people and to the world, the perfect character of God. Why was there a law? Because it shows you and I the perfect character of God. But it was never intended to be the ultimate revelation of the character of God. Instead, our high priest is himself the ultimate lawkeeper and is himself actually the ultimate law. So why even have the law? Why even have the old covenant? Paul answers this so well in Galatians chapter 3, and we already read it together. Is the law, this is verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, says Paul. For if the law had been given 
that could be, give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, this is huge, this is one of the, the kindest things God ever did for you, is to put you in handcuffs, and me. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he puts us all in handcuffs so that we all realize I'm in big trouble, right? I'm in big trouble. I've been handcuffed, okay? And now you're ready to hear the gospel. Now you're ready to be free. The law serves as our guardian. It's a keeper, a temporary keeper. It rightly diagnoses us until the cure can be administered. Or it serves to imprison us until Christ could set us free. If the law is our guardian, Jesus Christ is our guarantor. While the law keeps, temporarily keeps us, it can never pay the balance of our sin. But Jesus Christ is the perfect priest in sacrifice who settles our account before God. He is the perfect and ultimate fulfillment of the priesthood and the law. Why? First, because His office is permanent. As stated in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and He will not change His mind. You are a priest. Fill it in. How long? Forever. You're a priest forever. There's not the smallest nanosecond that Jesus will stop interceding for you. Think about that. There's not the smallest glimpse of a nanosecond that Jesus stops interceding. Second, His sacrifice is perfect. Like Abraham, when he is called upon to offer an unbelievable sacrifice, Jesus obeys. Unlike Abraham, no ram appeared in His stead. Unlike Abraham who is called as a father by someone else to sacrifice his son, Jesus was a son whose father called upon him to lie down and take the blows. His sacrifice was perfect. Third, his character is impeccable. Unlike Aaron and his sons, unlike every one of us, Jesus Christ needs no sacrifice for his sins. The irony of the cross is that the most innocent priest was treated as the vilest sinner. Finally, the permanency of his office, the perfection of his sacrifice, the impeccability of his character offer every one of us close proximity and sustained longevity to God. Let me say it again. It offers to us close proximity. We can be near God. Sustain longevity. What is that? For a long time. What do we call that? We have a short word for that. Salvation. That's what salvation is. Salvation is close proximity and sustained longevity to God. So I hope, as we look through all this, that we see the amazing plan of God in laying out salvation. What I want you to walk away with is please, please never view the Bible as God trying a bunch of different things and just seeing what will work. Please see it as it is represented by the author of Hebrews. God 
orchestrated everything perfectly. It was not a coincidence that the first mention of the word priest in the Bible is a seemingly strange character who will ultimately represent the high priest. It's not happenstance that the only conditional covenant was the one that served as a temporary role to get us, to show us our need for a Savior. From the outset, God's plan is clear. Anyone we redeem will be redeemed just like Abraham. You will be a, refu a refugee fleeing to the arms of God with the firm promise that God will save you. In the last minute and a half, Hebrews 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. Let us live as refugees who have fled. Let us flee the dangers of sin, of self, and the world. Let us live like this is not our home. And let us hold fast. Let us hold fast that Jesus Christ will do everything He has said He, has do, he will do. And then let us live with obedience. Let us live with joy, freedom, and thankfulness that we have a priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, standing for us before the throne of God above. Let me pray for us.